Okay, everybody, we are ready to begin. I'm happy to see y'all, and we're going to try to uh, get the PowerPoint up there and get things moving along here. So we'll see if we can get the technology to cooperate with us. And you should have that PowerPoint up on your screen now if it's all doing what it should. And you will notice that we are December 9th. Today, in case you didn't know that, December 16th, next week, is going to be our last class until the new year. We're going to take a little break. Uh, I might send you a few tidbits uh, in the email uh, over the we'll class again um, in January. So, uh, as usual, uh, let's start by saying together the scripture verse from Second Peter. And I want you to notice, as we pointed out in previous classes, about how the knowledge of God and of Jesus makes such a difference here. It brings grace and peace. It is the way that we learn all things that pertain to life and godliness. And it is the way through which we begin to become partakers in the divine nature. So that's some pretty good stuff. So let's uh, say this together. May grace and peace be multiplied in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So just iterate, uh, always seem to have a new person or two, so just to quickly through or to make you feel better if you haven't been doing very much with the class, uh, just remember there are lots of ways to approach this, and they are all good. There it is. Okay. We're making progress. All right. So that was a great scripture verse. I probably should have prayed first uh, and uh, prayed that there would not be technical difficulties. So uh, let me go ahead and say a prayer for us, and then we'll try to keep moving on. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would guide our time together tonight. We pray for logistical mercies over the Internet and uh, our installation here at the church. Lord, we pray that you would bless us through your presence and through this material tonight so that we would become better followers of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. So um, as I was saying, uh, different ways to approach this, but the most important thing right now is if you're not on my email list, please uh, reach out to me, Google St. Philip's Charleston, and send me a note. Um, and I did put up here the uh, address for the C.S. Lewis Doodle on YouTube, so uh, I commend that to you. And I wanted to uh, – this, this is really risky because I was going to try something on the edge technology-wise tonight, and after what just happened, I have a little trepidation. Uh, but we are going to try to listen to some music, and I'm going to tell you what it is, and there's a reason that I wanted to listen to it tonight. 
Uh, it is an Advent carol service from Maudlin College, Oxford. And Maudlin College, Oxford, of course, is where Lewis lived and worked for most of his career, decades. And after he became a Christian, he went to chapel every day. And he started every day off with the service and uh, very often went another time as well during the day and, uh, for the afternoon evensong. But I want to play this because it has beautiful pictures of the chapel, and it will give you a sense of part of what Lewis's life was like during this period. And you will also hear some of the bells, which were the same bells that he would hear. So let me see if I can do that. some bells and keys in glass windows. Okay, so sorry that that took so long there. It's a little uh, tricky tonight, but I wanted you to listen to that because that chapel was a major part of Lewis's life. And although it is hard for us to get our heads around it, there are services with a choir like that every single day of the week. And one of the things that gave Lewis great strength as he walked through these wartime years was the fact that he was able to go to chapel every day, and he was very good friends with the chaplain there. So, of course, just as we're reviewing this context, England is at war. We're going to hear some more about that tonight. It's some of the worst part of the war. Uh, the BBC getting Lewis to be a voice of encouragement for people. Uh, Jimmy Welch at the BBC being pivotal and instrumental in making this happen. Lewis and the RAF helping him uh, learn to talk to the common man. And then these two great prefaces that we talked about. And we talked about last week this amazing uh, series of titles that they went through trying to come up with uh, something that would be a good hook for people. 
and they determined right and wrong, a clue to the meaning of the universe would be the title. And it's been a title that I think has borne great fruit uh, over the years. And part of that is because of that word clue. Uh, it makes you feel like there's something to discover, something that is worth finding out about. And this whole question of who we are and how did we get here, how did the cosmos come to be, those meaning and purpose questions are so important. And we talked about that quote from Marcus Aurelius last week, he who does not know what the world is does not know where he is. And he who does not know for what purpose the world exists does not know who he is nor what the world is. And this is a point that we're going to come back to tonight. But one of the things I think the church really needs to engage, all of us who are Christians need to engage, is thinking seriously about these meaning and purpose questions. Sometimes we don't like to do that because they seem abstract, but they are hugely important in the way that we live our lives for Christ. So we talked about how the place that Lewis begins his apologetic, his argument, is really important. He doesn't start with evidence about Jesus or about what different religions believe, but with this hunger for meaning and purpose. And that is something that, if anything, has only grown since Lewis wrote this book uh, in the 1940s. And so we talked about this first book, the first section of the broadcast talks, uh, all under the heading right and wrong is a clue to the meaning of the universe. And last week we started with the law of human nature. And the law of human nature basically is that idea that there is pressing on us a sense of right and wrong, behavior that we expect from other people, but it's not always behavior that we find ourselves capable of doing. So just to sum up from that chapter last week, because it's the basis for all of his arguments going forward, he said, we have failed to practice ourselves the kind of behavior we expect from other people. When we do not keep the law of nature, we immediately begin to come up with self-justificatory excuses. And the question isn't whether they're really good excuses. The point is that they're one more proof of how deeply, whether we like it or not, we believe in the law of nature. If we didn't believe in decent behavior, why should we be so anxious to make excuses for not having behaved decently. And one of the best places to observe this, uh, it's hard to observe in the pandemic right now, but just watch the way fans treat referees or umpires in an athletic contest. Uh, they are all about fairness when they feel like the call goes against them. But if they're the beneficiary of something that the ref or the umpire didn't see, there's usually not much uh, coming forth about that. So we uh, like to have our cake and eat it too, as it were. And Lewis, I think, is exactly right here, that we only find all these explanations for when we fail to live up to the standard. Whenever we do the right thing, we always think that's just because we are such virtuous people. It's because we're great that we do the right thing. And it's um, all those bad people that do the wrong thing and annoy us. So Lewis sums up that chapter 
with this little paragraph. He says, there are two key points. Humans know the law of nature and they break it. And he says it this way. It is only our bad temper we put down to being tired or worried or hungry. We put our good temper down to ourselves. These then are the two points I wanted to make. First, that human beings all over the earth have this curious idea that they ought to behave in a certain way and cannot really get rid of it. Secondly, that they do not, in fact, behave in that way. They know the law of nature. They break it. These two facts are the foundation of all clear thinking about ourselves and the universe we live in. So it uh, is going to be interesting to see. Lewis is going to develop a lot of his arguments from these two premises. And this is a very unusual place for a Christian apologist to start. But I think it's something that we can learn a tremendous amount from. So I wanted to just, as an aside, say that although we may find some of Lewis's arguments a little bit abstract, you may feel like it makes your head hurt sometimes to think about these things. Um, and you may think, what does it matter so long as I believe? Let's not forget that what we believe about ultimate reality is crucially important in how we order our lives on this earth as individual Christians and as the church. The way that we live ought to be a witness, and the way that we live ought to be different enough from the way that most people in the world live that people ask us for the reason for the hope that is within us. And there's this great verse, Colossians 2.8, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. And the reason that's such an important verse is, in case you haven't noticed it, there are all kinds of philosophies and points of view and attitudes toward reality or right and wrong or anything along those lines that are all over the media and all over our culture. And it's very easy for those things to creep into our lives unless we really understand our own framework. So one of the benefits, one of the silver linings of this pandemic is it has made a lot of people think more about ultimate questions, but perhaps not quite in the same way as the stark realities that England faced in World War II. And I want to read you just a little bit of a newspaper article from the newspaper The Guardian, one of the major papers in London. This is from May 12, 1941. And I want you to just imagine if you woke up and you picked up the paper in your driveway, and this is what you read. Saturday night's raids on Britain involved London being heavily attacked by enemy aircraft, where it was bombed heavily for several hours. The report showed the number of casualties is quite high and that considerable damage has been done. The raid on London caused large fires in the Thames Loop, particularly the commercial docks area, and a sea of flame that could be seen 75 miles away. Westminster Abbey stands open to the sky, where the roof over the lantern in the center of the building has fallen in. The Dean's Home, one of the most perfect medieval houses in England, has been utterly destroyed, 
and the dean and his wife have nothing left but the clothes they were wearing. The roof of the lantern was destroyed by an incendiary bomb. The timbers of the roof were all burnt, and the timbers and vaulting fell into the floor, and the transept and choir collapsed. While a reporter was inspecting the wreckage, several tons of masonry from the injured lantern fell within a few yards of them. The pulpit has been destroyed. The considerable amount of damage is breathtaking. The top side of one of the pinnacles on the west side has also been damaged. In addition to the deanery, three other clergy were burned out of their homes, Canon Barry, Dr. Bullock, and Reverend Armitage. One of the people on site gave this report. In spite of every effort by a large number of firemen, we were unable to get the flames in hand before the incendiaries destroyed the roof, the pulpit, and many, many pews. Before this, we had to endure the agonizing sight of the lovely houses occupied by the clergy going up in flames. After the deanery was burned to the ground, the dean and his wife inspired us all by their calmness and fortitude. They stood on the lawn with the fires burning all around them, concerned only for the safety of others and of the firemen trying to save the abbey. Meanwhile, the House of Commons debating chapter has been wrecked and it cannot be used again. Bombs have smashed the roof of the members' lobby. They have hit uh, in previous raids and destroyed the scaffolding, and the doors and windows were blown out. The Houses of Parliament were on fire, including the main chamber. It was feared that Big Ben had been destroyed. A crash of tumbling masonry and clouds of dust gave the impression to firefighters that the tower was gone, but when the wreckage settled, they saw the clock was still there. The House of Lords was hit, and the superintendent killed along with several members. The British Museum was set alight by a shower of incendiaries. I could go on and on, but imagine if you heard that the U.S. Capitol had been bombed, that the Senate chamber and the House of Representatives were on fire, that the National Cathedral had been reduced to a ruin, and that the Smithsonian had been bombed out and was on fire, even as you were speaking. That would get your attention. And that is the context that this book is written in. Questions about right and wrong and why this is happening are really, really vitally important. Knowing why the Nazis were wrong is important now as it was then. So jumping into the chapter, which has the great title, Some Objections, uh, the way that this was written is that Lewis, after the first broadcast talk, started getting letters from people. And several of the people raised objections to his argument. And when they did that, he took note of what they said. And then several talks later, he addressed those objections. However, when he decided to write the book, he took what had been the fifth talk, some objections, and moved it right up so that they followed uh, right after the chapter. So we're going to walk through this. If you've got your book in front of you, this is a great time to have a highlighter and maybe a little pen. So we're just going to go through it in order. And the first thing Lewis says is the moral law is not the same thing as the herd instinct. Now, this sounds sort of like herd immunity in the pandemic, but that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about instincts, and this is coming from the worldview that says humans really are animals. 
that we operate by instinct rather than by thought, by heart, by soul. And so Lewis uses this example about the desire to help that we all experience if we hear somebody who's in trouble. But he says the desire to help is not the same thing as feeling you ought to help whether you want to or not. So when you hear a cry for help, you immediately feel two competing desires, a desire to help from the herd instinct and a desire to keep out of danger, an instinct for self-preservation. But what Lewis says is really peculiar and not to be expected is that there also is a third voice that you hear, a voice telling you to follow the impulse that tells you to help and suppress the impulse that tells you to run away. And that third voice that judges between the instincts can't be either one of them. It's got to be a separate thing. And he uses the first of a series of brilliant analogies. He says the sheet of music telling you which note to play cannot itself be one of the notes. The moral law tells us the tune we have to play Our instincts are merely the keys. So you see that picture of that piano there, and those keys are just there, and you could willy-nilly press whatever keys you wanted, but it wouldn't make any kind of music or tune. It would just be noise. And Lewis says the moral law is like that arrangement of notes on that printed page of music that tells us the tune to play. Our instincts are like those keys And the moral law is like that sheet music telling us what to do. And then he counters with his next point um, that if we didn't have this third voice, we would just have those two instincts. And he says, if nothing is in the creature's mind but two instincts, it would have to follow the stronger. When we are most conscious of the moral law, it is telling us to follow the weaker instinct even though we may not want to, because it is right to do so. All of us can probably remember times when we knew we should do something. We didn't want to. It might be embarrassing to do it, but we knew it was the right thing to do, even though our sense that we might be humiliated um, was the stronger instinct. And so we had to encourage ourselves and use the instinct that was the weaker one because it was the right thing to do. And again, Lewis comes back to that piano analogy, saying that when you have that sheet music, it tells you that certain notes need to be played, but it also tells you when certain notes need to be played louder. And the thing that's telling you to play louder can't be the note itself. That note on the piano, that key, is inanimate. It can't do anything. So Lewis is saying that the thing that tells you uh, to do the right thing can't be the thing itself. So his next objection is he said this, if the moral law was just one of our instincts, we ought to be able to point to some one impulse in us, which is always what we would call good, always in agreement with the rule of right behavior. But he says the interesting thing is that you can't do that. Some things are right at one time and wrong at another. 
He says, there's none of our impulses, which the moral law may not sometimes tell us to suppress, and none which it may not sometimes tell us to encourage. So he uses the example of the tension between love and justice. If you just loved people and said, oh, I don't mind that you burgled my house, just go your way, I love you, um, that wouldn't really work very well. On the other hand, if you insisted on justice all the time, you could have a harsh and totalitarian regime. And it's the idea that sometimes something is right, and sometimes that thing that's good and right would be the worst thing you could possibly say. It reminds me of uh, when you are visiting someone in the hospital. One of the great things to say uh, in this little story that is probably apocryphal, there is a little boy who's going to visit an elderly relative in the hospital. And he says to his mother, Mother, I don't know what to say to granddad. I don't know what to say to try to make him feel better. I'm scared about going in the hospital. And his mother said, don't worry. All you need to say is I hope they pull you through. I hope they pull you through. And that will encourage your grandfather. So they go with great trepidation up to the hospital room. The little boy is nervous, but he knows that his mother has said this is the right thing to say. And so he's already, he's rehearsed it in his mind. And he looks at his grandfather and his grandfather says, oh, Billy, I'm so glad you've come to see me. I'm lying at death's door. And Billy says, I hope they pull you through. Well, that is something that was the right thing to say, but that was the wrong moment to say it. And what Lewis is trying to get at here is that that is true with our instincts. Things that we think are good to do may be good in some circumstances, but in other circumstances would be really bad, like Billy found out when he said that. And he uses, again, the piano image. And he says, think of a piano, and it doesn't have just two kinds of notes, the right notes and the wrong notes. So, for example, if you played the black keys all the time and you thought those were the right notes and the white keys were the wrong notes, that's not the way it works. Every single note on the piano is right at one time and wrong at another. If you're a musician, you know sometimes when you are playing something that is in the key of G, which means F should be sharp, and you accidentally play an F natural, it just sounds horrible. It makes your, your spine tingle because it's so bad. But on the other hand, if you have a suspended chord and it finally resolves into the major chord, it's just beautiful and all this tension is released. If you didn't understand that and you're not a musician, don't worry. It doesn't really matter. But the important thing about this is the idea that every behavior is right at one time and wrong at another. So the moral law is not any one instinct or set of instincts. It's something which makes a kind of tune, which we call goodness or right conduct, by directing the instincts. So the next point that Lewis makes is the moral law is not mere social convention. Sometimes uh, in the letters that he got, people would say, these are just things that were taught to us by parents and teachers. 
and therefore they're just social conventions. But what Lewis says is that's not true, that the things that are taught to us by parents and teachers, we should be grateful for, but those things are not all human inventions. We are taught things like the multiplication tables, but those are discovered rather than invented. They are timeless and true across ages and across cultures. He says there are things that we learn that are mere conventions that might have been different. We learn to keep to the left of the road. That's if you're in England, don't do that here. But it might just as well have been the right. And others things that are not conventions like that, like mathematics, are real truths. And just to tell you a little story about that, I learned about these social conventions being just that, things that could easily be the other way. When I was a student and I was fortunate to do an exchange program in France for the summer when I was 15, and we were at a place where they gave us terrible food, which is very unusual in France, but I mean, it was really gross, inedible. So my friend and I would go to the pastry shop every day to eat because our included food was so disgusting. But the people in the pastry shop felt sorry for these two teenage Americans, and so they invited us to their family restaurant run by their grandmother one Sunday. So we went up there, and I was very mindful. It was very intimidating. There's this very austere-looking older lady at the end of the table, and so I was determined to have my best table manners. And they put me at the seat right next to this older lady. And all of you who have good table manners have been taught since you were children that when you sit down at the table, what do you do with your hands? You fold them and put them in your lap. So that was exactly what I did. And this lady looked over at me and she gasped and she went, (gasps) and she grabbed my hand and put it up on top of the table and slapped it and said, do not put your hands under the table. Because any of you who have spent a lot of time in France will know that it is extremely rude to put your hands in your lap during a meal and that they should be visible at all times on the table. So it's not that one's right and the other's wrong. They're just different. They're conventions. But Lewis says that is not the same thing as the moral law. The moral law is not just a convention. It is a truth with a capital T. And he says that there are differences in moral laws of one time or country and those of another. The differences are not really very great. And you can recognize the same law running through them all. Whereas mere conventions like the rule of the road or the kind of clothes people wear or where you put your hands at the dinner table may differ to any extent. So this is something that's really important. And this idea about uh, the similarity in moral laws uh, is in that uh, appendix to the abolition of man that we mentioned last time. And I would commend that to you. It's really interesting reading. Um, the abolition of man uh, is uh, a little bit abstract, but the appendix is really easy to read. So I would commend, uh, if you're scuba diving especially, make sure to get that. Now, this next point is one that is hugely important. Do you think the morality of one people is ever better or worse than that of another? If not, there could never be any moral progress. If no set of moral ideas 
were truer or better than any other, there would be no sense in preferring Christian morality to Nazi morality. I'm going to read that one more time. Do you think the morality of one people is ever better or worse than that of another? If not, there could never be any moral progress. If no set of moral ideas were truer or better than any other, there would be no sense in preferring Christian morality to Nazi morality. Now, the reason that this is so important is we are living in an age where there is huge argument and conflict about this very thing. Uh, we are in the midst of a time where people are uh, taking down statues, for example, uh, and saying that we are now morally uh, better, that we've progressed morally, and we know how wrong those people were, and they deserve to be taken down because we have made moral progress since that time. And that's something that we hear over and over again on all sorts of different issues. Now, you can go back in time and you can see things like when William Wilberforce was able to work with the British Parliament to abolish the slave trade, and people would say that was a moral advance. Uh, people will say that Nazi morality was obviously wrong. Um, we would look at cultures that practice child sacrifice and say that when they've moved away from that, that they have made moral progress. But the interesting thing about this is that the same people that will tell you we are so progressive today will tell you that we should never prefer one morality to another. They will tell you that uh, in the name of diversity, every morality, every culture that is out there deserves to be completely respected and left alone no matter what they are doing. And the interesting thing about this is in a discussion with some students several years ago, a number of them were arguing with me that we should have left the Nazis alone, that the Nazis were doing what they did because they believed it was right, and they had enacted it through the legislature, and because they believed it was right, who were we to go in and try to impose our values on them? Now, obviously, that's kind of scary if you have people who want to stand up and say there's nothing wrong with uh, Nazi morality. But the reason that what Lewis is saying here is so important is if you believe that there is no standard, there's no such thing as right and wrong, then there is nothing that is evil. Nothing. There's no behavior that can't be practiced. There's no behavior uh, that could be condemned. So, but Lewis says that's not the way it is, that in fact, uh, there is such a thing as moral progress, and some ideas and some morals are better than others. So he concludes that part by saying the moment that you say one set of moral ideas can be better than another, you are in fact measuring them both by a standard saying that one of them conforms to that standard more nearly than the other. But the standard that measures two things is something different from either. You are, in fact, comparing them both with some real morality, admitting that there is such a thing as a real right, independent of what people think, and that some people's ideas get nearer to that real right than others. Or put it this way, 
If your moral ideas can be truer and those of the Nazis less true, there must be something, some real morality for them to be true about. And the analogy that he uses, I think, is a great one. Imagine that I told you to think about, get a mental picture in your head of New York City. Get a mental picture in your head of New York City. And then Lewis says, the reason why your idea of New York can be truer or less true than mine is that New York, New York City, is a real place existing quite apart from what either of us thinks, quite apart from whatever image you have in your head. If when each of us said New York City, each meant merely the town I'm imagining in my own head, how could one of us have truer ideas than the other? There would be no question of truth or falsehood at all. It would just be an opinion. But because New York is a real place that we've many of us have been to, we know what it's like. We know if somebody says, oh, New York is a wonderful assemblage of thatched roof cottages, we know that that's wrong. Um, and that can be objectively proven because New York is a real place. And then he concludes with this little caveat about differences of morality versus differences of belief about facts. And the analogy he uses here is about uh, the witch trials and executions. And basically he did this because somebody wrote a letter to him saying, well, what about when they were having witch hunts and they were burning witches at the stake? How could there be any kind of moral law when that kind of thing was going on? And what Lewis says is there's not really a difference of moral principle here. The difference is simply about a matter of fact. It may be a great advance in knowledge not to believe in witches. There's no moral advance in not executing them when you do not think that they are there. You would not call a man humane for ceasing to set mouse traps if he did so because he believed there were no mice in the house. And what Lewis is getting at here is he, and he builds this more in the chapter, but he said, if you really believe that there are witches out there, people that could look at your child and put a curse on them that would cause your child to die, who could put a curse on you that would cause everyone in your family to get the plague and die and your house to burn down, um, that those people deserve some sort of punishment, whether it's death or imprisonment or whatever. Um, just saying that they are um, above the law would not be a tenable thing. He said the problem was that there was not such a thing as witches, that these were not people that really had these powers, and it was a mistaken belief. So he says this um, this idea about mouse traps. Uh, think about if you had mice in your house. Some of us who live in downtown Charleston can relate to that. Uh, we've had mice and rats and possums and all sorts of things. And if you have those kinds of things in your house, then you put traps out for them. But imagine that you have a house somewhere else where there aren't any mice in the town and there are no rats, and so you don't set out mouse traps. Well, that doesn't, let's say that's a beach in Florida. That doesn't mean that you're humane just and you don't want to hurt the little mice 
because you didn't put any traps out in your house in Florida, you didn't think there were any mice there. It doesn't have anything to do with whether you're trying to be humane or not. So Lewis sums up by saying the moral law or the law of human nature or the rule of decent behavior, whatever you want to call it, is real. Real with a capital R, true with a capital T. It's not an instinct. He says this law, which affects only humans, not animals, is part of what differentiates us from animals. Uh, It is a law that we can choose to obey or we can choose to disobey it, unlike the law of gravity. Uh, It's not an instinct, but something else. And it's more like the laws of mathematics, something discovered or revealed, than it is like a convention, something invented or preferred by a culture. So I want to just walk quickly through these analogies again. Uh, One of the great things about this book is these analogies. And the more time that you put into them, um, if you've got a piano, you might even want to go sit at it and think about some of these analogies. Um, They will help you get your head around some of these ideas. So the first analogy is the sheet of music telling you which note to play cannot itself be one of the notes. It's not one of the keys on the piano telling you what to play. It's that sheet that somebody has organized uh, and put into a beautiful pattern. And the moral law is like that sheet music that tells us the tune we have to play. Our instincts are merely the keys. Another analogy is he says the thing that tells you which note on the piano needs to be played louder cannot itself be that note. Imagine if you went to a concert and they started off, the symphony was playing, and they started off with every single instrument blaring as loudly as it could, and they did that for three hours straight, and that was all it was. That would be awful. Part of what makes music beautiful is what's called the dynamic range, the difference between loud and soft from forte to pianissimo. And the idea that some things should be loud and others soft are not the instruments or the notes. It is the direction. It is the music that is written down. And again, think once again of a piano. It has not got two kinds of notes on it the right notes and the wrong notes. Every single note is right at one time and wrong at another. Most of the time, it's really good to say to a sick person, I hope they pull you through, but not when they've just said, I'm lying at death's door. In the same way, uh, the moral law is not any one instinct or set of instincts. It's something which makes a kind of tune, the tune we call goodness or right conduct, by directing the instincts. And you can kind of envision here an orchestra conductor who is conducting the music and pointing to which instrument needs to play at the right time uh, and the beauty that results from that. Another thing that is a great analogy, some of the things we learn are mere conventions that might have been different. We learn to keep to the left of the road, but it might just as well have been the rule to keep to the right. And others of them, like mathematics, are real truths. If you've driven in England or in Ireland or a country where they drive on the different side of the road than we do, it's very disconcerting. 
but it really is not as if one is right and one is wrong. And the same way about where you put your hands on the dinner table is not really a matter of morality. It's just a matter of custom or social convention. Then this idea about New York, imagining New York City, thinking about what it looks like in your mind. And you can evaluate who has the truer image of New York because New York is a real place. It exists quite apart from what any of us thinks. If when each of us said New York, each of us meant merely the town I'm imagining in my own head, how could one of us have truer ideas than the other? There would be no question of truth or falsehood at all. And then the whole part about witch trials, there's no difference of moral principle. The difference is simply about the matter of fact. It may be a great advance in knowledge not to believe in witches, assuming there are none. However, there's no moral advance in not executing or punishing them when you don't think that they're there. And again, mousetraps and mice, you would not call a man humane for ceasing to set mousetraps if he did so because he believed there were no mice in the house. So this is a chapter that will bear rereading and thinking about. Um, these analogies will bear rereading and thinking about. And they will help you get a hold of this idea about what philosophers call absolute truth, uh, which is what Lewis is going to be building toward. So I want to close before we have a little question time uh, with our uh, verse from the end of the book, uh, which is all about giving up ourselves in order to find the real life that Christ longs to give us. So let's say this together. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will ever be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him, everything else thrown in. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of this book and for the gift of this time together. Lord, we thank you that you are the creator of truth, that you are the creator of the moral law, that you are the conductor and the author of the music, which our instincts, when they are aligned with your will, enables us to follow in such a way that we have lives of beauty and truth and goodness. Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand these concepts, that we would not fall prey to the philosophies and deceptions of this world, but that instead we would cling to the truth of your kingdom. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, we are going to take a few minutes uh, in case anyone has any questions or a comment that you would like to make. Um, feel free to uh, raise your hand or to send it in a chat, whatever you would like.
Uh, it is fine if you don't have any questions or comments, uh, but if you do, I am more than happy to try to respond to them. And if you haven't learned anything else, I hope you've learned if you're visiting somebody in the hospital and they say, I'm lying at death's door, don't say, I hope they pull you through. Yeah. Let me ask a question. How does having a comparison between two moral values lead to the conclusion that there is a third? That is a great question. And what, what he's really talking about here is instincts. And so, the, you know, an example of that might be the idea that you are, let's just say that you are feeling really hungry and you are in line at Chick-fil-A and you are about to place your order and then you see the proverbial little old lady fall on the sidewalk outside the restaurant and you are the only gentleman who's there and you are really, you can smell your Chick-fil-A sandwich and you can smell the fries and you know that because it's a long, long line that if you go help the lady, you're going to lose your place in line and it'll be 30 minutes before you can get your food. But you're going to go help that lady, I hope, um, because you know that that's the right thing to do. And so it's like the voice of conscience. The third voice is like the voice of conscience um, that's telling you what to do. And it's not, it's not the instinct to help the little old lady. And it's not the instinct that you want your food. Because at that moment, the instinct that you want your food is probably stronger in what's been on your mind. So that, that's part of what he's trying to get at there. I'll probably try to put a few more examples in the email um, that may help explain that. That's a great question. Other questions or comments about anything? Um, Brian, you have said how relevant this is for us today living in this culture. And all we have to do is maybe watch a Black Lives Matter, um, you know, situation and know the underlying thoughts and philosophy behind it. And yet they're so convinced that this is absolutely the right thing. And we could talk about other things that are uh, going on today. So how would you have a discussion with a person perhaps from Black Lives Matter where there is a Marxist underlying philosophy? Mm -hmm. How would you have a discussion to talk about the true uh, law of morality. And, and that's where we are today. That's why we're so separated. And, and people in, uh, in the work, uh, workforce have to take diversity training. And if they don't, uh, they could lose their job or if they even step out. And so what, what is your uh, take on that of how to live in the culture today? Should we avoid these discussions? Um, I don't think so, but yet how can we be relevant in these discussions? That is a great question. Um, 
if I knew the answer to that and its fullness, I would probably be the richest person in America right now. Um, however, I do think that there we have some pretty good advice from Jesus, of all people, um, about that. And I think you're exactly right. That is the crux of where we are as a culture, because many people um, that are involved in different movements that are going on, not just Black Lives Matter, but a lot of other things are coming from worldviews that are profoundly different from the Christian worldview and have a different understanding of truth. Um, Marxism is a very, very different worldview from Christianity. And that is, um, you know, clearly when you go on the Black Lives Matter website, that that is one of their major influences. But what Jesus said, and this is one of the most radical things that Jesus said, is love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And I think that part of the thing that has made this so difficult in our culture is that we want to, with the best of intentions, and I, I find this in myself, I want to fix other people's thinking. And that is not helpful. Um, Jesus did not come to fix people's thinking. Jesus came to invest in people, to love them, to share himself with them, even to die for people while they were yet sinners. And so I think our, our first call is to build relationship. It's like that um, old cliche, and I often say cliches are cliches because a lot of times they're true, um, that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Mm-hmm. And that it's a very different thing having that kind of discussion with somebody that you care about and that person knows that you love them um, and you know that you're loved in return. Um, but I think that that's part of the, the mandate for the church right now. And it is, it's really hard because most of us are so balkanized that we're, we're in sort of pockets and we don't even really, it's not easy to build relationship right now. But I think that's a great thing to pray is that God would put people in your life um, who have a different point of view that you can build that kind of relationship with and and literally love them as Jesus did. Um, I also think that, that part of what is important as well is for Christians to live with integrity and to um, admit many of the things that Christians have done wrong and things that have been supported that shouldn't have been, um, but all the while holding to the truth of the gospel and this idea of loving your enemies. Christianity is the only faith in all of the world that has the radical command to love your enemies. And that's why when our culture is so profoundly broken, that Christianity is the only hope that we have. Thank you. That's a great question. As I said, if I, if I could fix that, um, that would be an amazing thing. But I do think that part of what the church needs to do is to rise up and radically love right now. I think that is, um, a large part of the answer. And yeah, one of the things that, um, I'm not going to go on and on about this, but another thing that I think is important to remember 
is when you look at Jesus's ministry, Jesus is the son of God who came as a baby and grew up and he was sent to save this world. And he came into a culture that had one of the most evil and oppressive governments in the history of the world where people were being slaughtered for no reason. And yet you don't see Jesus taking up any of those kinds of causes. Uh, You don't see Jesus railing against the government. What you see Jesus doing is getting up in the morning and walking every day. And then he just ministers to whoever God puts in his path. And he does it with integrity and love and beauty. And, you know, it is really interesting to me if God's strategic plan was to save the world, you know, if somebody asked me a strategic plan to save the world, I would probably want to have a big movement that would fix all these things that seem to be so dramatically wrong. But what Jesus shows is that each individual heart is the most important thing. Mm. All right, sorry, I'm preaching a sermon. Um, Other questions? All right. Well, given that we are uh, just about out of time, I will wrap things up. Um, Thank you for hanging in there during our technical difficulties. We have ordered an Ethernet cable uh, that we believe will stop that from happening. But as some of you heard, I think I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, um, St. Phillips, because we're in the middle of a historic district and we're on a plot of land that we've owned since 1723, um, and it's two city blocks, and most of the inhabitants have been dead for a couple of hundred years because they're in the churchyard. Um, there was not a high demand for fiber optic cable in these two blocks, so they never put any in. And we've just recently had it laid and connected to this building uh, just about two weeks ago, and it's still got some bugs in it. So um, I'm grateful we were able to get it back so I could be with y'all tonight. Uh, I will look forward to seeing you next week. God bless you and have a wonderful evening. Thank you. Good night. Good night, y'all. Love you. Bye.